Welcome to the Optimal Body Podcast. I'm Doc Jen. And I'm Dr. Dom. And we are doctors of physical therapy, bringing you the body tips and PT pearls to help you begin to understand your body, relieve your pains and restrictions, and answer your questions. Along with expert guests, our goal of the Optimal Body Podcast is to help you discover what optimal means within your own body. Let's dive in. So now we're going to dive into our next PT pearl, which is anterior pelvic tilt. Yes, we are going to talk about what anterior pelvic tilt is, uh, why people talk about it so much, how could it could potentially lead to other pains, and what to start to do about it. Yeah, so I think diving right in, anterior pelvic tilt, we're talking about the pelvis here, which is that big old thing right at the bottom of your spine that your legs are also attached to, um, and it can kind of tilt both forward and backward, which we call anterior pelvic tilt when it's tilting forward and posterior pelvic tilt when it's tilting backwards. Why don't you go a little deeper on what that means and how yeah. people can feel that? Yeah. So one of the ways that, I mean, even if you were just sitting, I think um, sitting on not necessarily a chair, but maybe you put a pillow and kind of stack so that your your legs are or your knees are below your hips, it makes it a little bit easier this way. So if we're even just sitting here, okay, so find yourself in like not slumping against a chair or anything, um, and then explore what it feels like to get those, so without moving your shoulders and your upper back, see what it feels like to move these hip bones towards your thighs. So you'll feel usually like an arch into your low back. You'll feel, you know, the, the stomach elongate and your shoulders want to dip back, but try to keep them just straight and then feel what it feels like to take those hip bones and tilt them back the other way without rounding through the upper back. So without slumping into your shoulders, trying to keep that chest high. And then can I just get those hip bones to come up toward my rib cage and my belly might pull in a little bit, my back rounds a little bit and then see what it feels like. Can I go back and forth? Can I find how much posterior pelvic tilt, how much anterior? So posterior meaning I'm rounding through the back and I'm pulling those hip bones up toward my rib cage. Anterior meaning I'm taking my hip bones forward into my thighs. So and if little, you want more of a image of how that's happening, check out the YouTube version if you're just listening because yeah. you'll be able to see it more on Jen as she's demonstrating. And Dom. Um, and me. Especially because I have a heck of an anterior pelvic tilt tendency. Yep. Why is that? A lot of reasons. And a lot of things that I did when I trained growing up, especially with sports and with lifting, um, I would tend to find a lot of stability in my big, strong hip muscles um, and also my big chest muscles where my low back then would start to make up for some range of motion where I was missing hip extension, you know, where my leg's going back and a little bit of, you know, thoracic spine or upper back extension and opening. Mm -hmm. You know, I would find that with low back extension that would kind of dump my pelvis forward into that anterior pelvic tilt. Mm -hmm. And really, I wasn't aware of it for a long time, especially th even through college lifting. I mean, I did some things in college that make me cringe now as a physical therapist thinking about how I was loading through that spine and low back because of my anterior pelvic tilt. Yeah. 
And usually when people talk about anterior pelvic tilt, if we look at the way that the body stacks, now if I pull my pelvis forward, so again, remember hip bones going toward my thighs and kind of that low back kind of arching and creating more of that extension in that low back, the pulling into the front of the hip. So now that's where people say, I have chronically tight hip flexors, mm -hmm. right? Because I'm stuck mm. in this anterior pelvic tilt and then my back works so much harder and it becomes what we call as physical therapists, you don't need to know this, but it's what we call a lower cross syndrome where the hip flexors are tight, the low back is tight because that's the natural pull of that anterior pelvic tilt. So then we say, okay, well then opposite of that, the abs are elongated and weak and the hamstrings and the glutes, really mm -hmm. the glutes area is, yep. is, you know, extended and weak. Yeah. Well, and when you think about all those muscles and when we kind of like dissect through that, it makes sense <laughs> when you think about it, just base level. Okay. The hip flexors and low back are gonna pull us into anterior pelvic tilt. The glutes and the abdominal region and the hamstrings are gonna pull us into more posterior pelvic tilt. So strengthen and shorten those ones and lengthen the hip flexors and the low back. Great, problem solved, right? That's what it would appear mm, to be. Quite. <laughs> yeah. So when you ask Dr. Dom and I anything, um, First of all, we'll say it depends. Like mm -hmm. most good physical therapists, they say it depends. Mm -hmm. And on top of just it depends, it's yes and. Okay, so yes, maybe we need to work on some core. Maybe we need to work on some glute strengthening. Maybe we need to open up those hip flexors and get the low back to relax. Yes. And why is that the natural pattern that your body is wanting to go into? Because mm -hmm. I could do all day. I can hammer out the hip flexors. I can really smash into them. I can make you do all the glute exercises in the world. But if your nervous system, queen of your body, wants to naturally put you back into this anterior pelvic tilt, the moment that you go back to stand, the moment that you go back to lift, then we did nothing to actually work on the patterns of the body to create true change. Absolutely. And a lot of the things that we do in order to, especially when we're talking about lengthening, you know, for specifically thinking more about the hips and low back, are generally more passive mm -hmm. and generally more in like a passive stretch or tissue work or different things that we'll try doing like you said tools that we might use to smash in but how do we actively understand how to support that with that hip flexor when we're in a very extended position it might just not know how to use its strength when it's in that extended position which is why it stays in a more shortened position yeah and it's like you know we're not We've talked about this before, but we're not smashing out tissue. We're not actually creating that length and the elongation through smashing. So we don't necessarily go by that measure. Uh, maybe we need to create stimulation. And that stimulation by touching into more of a psoas region, the hip flexor region, you know, if someone's digging deep into that hip, maybe we need to create that stimulation. And that stimulation can then help to get fluids moving a little bit better. Fascia to, for that moment, feel like it can uh, like move and slide and glide better mm -hmm. um, and create 
some signals to our brain to tell that tension in that muscle to relax. That's all we're doing when we create touch. So we don't necessarily need to smash and we don't need to get onto a really hard tool to create change because that has there. I believe Jill Miller has found some studies of where it's been. Um, Mm -hmm. it's ended up bad. (laughs) Let's just say that from someone trying to smash too much into a psoas because your psoas, your hip flexor is so deep into your hip Mm -hmm. that you have other things on top of it. So if we're trying to get deep into that hip, we might be smashing into other areas that are a little bit more crucial and delicate that we should not be smashing into. Yeah. we got all sorts of nerves and vessels and arteries and stuff that are really important and different organs, yeah. <laughs> you know, in that area. So exactly. that's where anytime we're talking about using tools or doing deep tissue work, the most important thing is how is my nervous system wanting to react right now? Mm-hmm. And how am I controlling that with whatever process, usually breath yeah. is what we go to because yeah. breath is one of those things that you always can have voluntary control over mm-hmm. that helps change some automatic processes in our body yeah some processes that will automatically happen when we're just doing our daily life we still can have voluntary ability to maybe shift that a little bit yeah so when we're so yes you can do some things where you kind of stimulate into the psoas get that to relax a little bit maybe you can do some glute strengthening some core strengthening sure okay but then how do i create that that true change to that neurological system repatterning now Mm. when I'm standing, when I'm lifting, when I'm walking, when I'm doing other movements. Mm. Um, And that's where I like to guide people back into uh, the breath. Breath. (laughs) Because here's the thing. So just let's think about this for the person who's listening, right? And not watching the podcast. I'm going to show it for the video, but but if if you're just listening, try to picture this. Okay. So you are standing and you're you're an anterior pelvic tilt, right? So your hip bones are dropping forward into your thighs. And that kind of then creates this opposite pattern in my rib cage. So my rib cage is then going to lift and flare out. Okay. So it might not even open and flare, but it's definitely going to be forward and flare, right? So it, you're, you're going to be able to notice your lower rib cage pop out a little bit more if you're really in that anterior pelvic tilt. Okay. So now I'm here. Now take a deep breath. Where am I usually always going to breathe into if I'm already into this extended position is my chest. Okay. So now if I'm breathing up into my chest area, one, I'm staying in my sympathetic, I'm keeping everything really tight. So I'm keeping Mm -hmm. that tension through the muscles, through that psoas and that hip flexor Mm -hmm. and that low back particularly. So I'm going to continue to drive pressure in that sympathetic state by breathing into my chest all the time. Now, if I just start to switch the way that I'm thinking of that rib cage and I start to feel like I want to open up along my rib cage. So now I want you to take that, the end of that rib cage, the front of that rib cage, and I want you to point it down toward the floor. You might even notice, oh my God, I feel like I have to round in my upper spine. Try not to. <laughs> okay. So try to keep. And that's one thing that I have some tendency to do. Mm-hmm. Try to keep your shoulders like as upright as possible while the rib cage is going down. This might be a little bit hard to figure out at first. So just go to, maybe it'll be a little bit less. 
extended and up. It's okay if it's not completely down toward the ground, okay? Then I want you to put your hands on your low rib cage and give it a little squeeze. So literally grab the size of your low rib cage, try to relax your shoulders, and then give it a squeeze. Now breathe in nice and slow and feel your hands expand a little bit and then breathe out. Now what, and then just try practicing that a little bit. Now what naturally happens when I drop that rib cage is again, now my body is gonna respond in a different way. So if now I don't have so much extension in that low back and that rib cage flaring up and I drop that rib cage, well my pelvis is gonna respond to that. So rather than being in that anteriorly tilted position, it's gonna come back into a more neutral position. So already if I just start to change the way that I'm breathing and I'm thinking about where my breath is coming from, am I am I squeezing my rib cage? Am I am I expanding from that low rib cage? Am I using that diaphragm? Am I creating a better pressure system from my diaphragm to my pelvic floor rather than my pelvic floor being open and tilted forward, right? So if I create this better pressure system, I already start to stack and align that pelvis. So rather than how am I smashing out my hip flexors? How am I strengthening my core? How am I, what glute band exercises am I doing? <laughs> Rather than all of those, if you just start to come back to this breath pattern, you will start to align and stack. And then with that breath, if you learn to maintain that and keep that and move into some of those other exercises, yes. you will notice a world of difference in how those exercises feel and, and just systemically how you're moving. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I can, from my own experience, and again, I was an athlete. I wasn't an elite, elite athlete, but I did play college football. So I had these patterns for a while. And anybody who works with athletes know that athletes always know best. <laughs> <laughs> and so, of course, in college, I, I had some people say throughout, like, hey, maybe you should try working on this or maybe you should work on this. And it's like, no, no, no. I, I almost lift the most weight on our team. I you know, I'm one of the strongest guys here. Like, no, thank you. But I know what I'm doing. And it's almost taken me three, four years, five years of now having this awareness and working on it and putting work in to feel a real significant difference. And so again, these patterns that we create, how long have we been creating them? Mm -hmm. How long have we been positioned like this? Mm -hmm. um, and just think back in your history, if this is something that you feel like, you, you know, you get to dive in more to, how long is this been my pattern and what is my realistic expectation as to the plan to start shifting that resting state yeah you know i think it's just knowing that it takes time to repattern what our nervous system is used to doing um and it's it's this repatterning of movement it's not necessarily that i need to gain more strength exactly like you said it's not necessarily that i need uh. to um lengthen muscle tissue because that's not what we're doing it's really about how can I create this new normal within my body in general? So how can I get into more of my movements that I like to do? So whatever kind of exercise you like to do, we're not going to say one way, right? Whatever exercise you like to do, how can I focus on where's my rib cage while I'm doing this? And not that I need to bow down and, and squeeze my core really tight just to get that rib cage to move. But how can I use my breath and actually expand from my rib cage and then lower from my rib cage and just start to start there? This is a like we're talking. This is our foundation, right? So mm -hmm. we're not saying this is the end all be all of fixing anterior pelvic tilt. 
But I guarantee that if you start here, it's going to help you to build upon then what you want to strengthen upon and then what you want to build into. You will feel something different and you'll be able to make yourself feel different positions and, oh, okay, that's what they're talking about. And Mm -hmm. that's what it means to have that support there. And, oh, wow, I am in this tilt at this time. And, And it just starts to bring that awareness. 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 I wear it on my wrist. She wears it around her wrist. And I wear empower around my neck <laughs> because we like to be able to empower people with these tools yes. to bring awareness into their body. Oh, and look, look at, at that. that. Oh, my gosh. Oh, whoa. <laughs> <laughs> so cute. <laughs> it explodes. Um, but yeah, and it's a process. And that's just the beginning. Yeah. And then again, it's learning how to start carrying a little bit of that new resting state through life and through movement and through higher level skills. Yeah. Because I promise you... I'm much less strong right now. And I put big air quotes around that because I could lift a lot lower number in my squats and in my bench presses and stuff compared to college. But I promise you I'm more powerful, I'm more functional, and I feel better right now, hands down, compared to how I felt in college when I was at my peak athleticism. Yeah. And that doesn't mean that you can't get back to peak athleticism. That's our whole point of building from this foundation, right? So if you wanted to start lifting extremely heavy, which you have. Which I do. And and my point being, I don't, I don't know if I want to get back up to those numbers because it wasn't a functional way of lifting for me. If I wanted to, yeah. I mean, I could probably put together a program and get there in a much more functional supported way. I know I could, but I don't want to put 600 pounds on my back. again in life. I just, there's, I don't have that desire right now and maybe that'll change, but. Yeah. And so it's like, what is your intention? Why are you wanting to do it? And how can we start to build upon your foundation and keep that foundation as you start to build upon that programming? So Mm -hmm. it's not bad programming. It's just a poor foundation. So make sure that that foundation is set, Mm. utilize that breath, figure out how you're moving and then start strengthening and mobilizing outside of that. Absolutely. And now we are going to be diving into our next interview. So we're so pumped. Stay tuned. We're welcoming to the podcast today, Dr. Molly Parker, who is also a physical therapist who sustained a life changing concussion in 2011. And her story is just so incredible. And not only is she in an, like such a sweet human, but to hear the journey that she is still on to today in recovery has been incredible because she was unable to find knowledgeable care within the healthcare system and her symptoms started to deteriorate. Molly spent years seeking the help before beginning to find the proper care that she needed and she continues in her own recovery. And as she is doing that, she's helping others to optimize their concussion recovery and give the knowledge necessary for us to understand this better. So I'm so excited to have her on. Hello, Molly. I am so incredibly blessed and excited to have you on the podcast. I know you and I met like two to three years ago, something like that. And we sat down. It was quite a while that we just sat down and talked and hearing your story coming from this concussion and your journey over the last seven to eight years and what you've been through is like none other. It's nothing I've ever heard before. And especially coming from a clinician, you're a physical therapist. And to have this kind of experience, I would love for people to just be able to hear your journey 
be able to understand what they can do and how they can start to recognize these post-concussive symptoms. So let's dive in. Hi, Molly. I want to introduce people real quick of who you are. Yeah. So my name is Molly Parker. I am a physical therapist. And back in 2011, I had a car accident where I sustained a concussion and has led me to what I do today with working through you know concussion injuries with other people. But yeah, it's just been quite a ride. Oh my God. Yeah. So what happened? Like what was your accident that you got into? So I was out with a group of friends. One had just actually passed her PT boards and we were celebrating and we'd gone out dinner and dancing and we were leaving a downtown San Diego nightclub. So it was really, sidewalks were really crowded and a cab driver fell asleep at the wheel and went up onto the sidewalk and essentially drove through the crowd. So he hit myself and several others. And it was one of those things where it was just so chaotic and there was other injuries worse than mine. And so it helped with that. And then once things kind of calmed down, I went into the bathroom with one of my friends who'd broken her nose. And she's, you know, I, I remember forgetting, but I just looked at her and said, did something bad happen? I had no memory of kind of like the last two hours. So they had me go to the emergency room and they did a CT scan. They x-rayed my legs. And I remember getting discharged the next morning, just feeling super lucky. And then seeing in my paperwork when I got home that I'd had a concussion. And at the time, I thought concussions just went away. Like I had no idea what they could turn into. So I think I took one day off work, went back, and I was just, you know, I very much felt like I got hit by a car, but I was just really off and foggy and my head hurt and just kind of weird. And then the symptoms just didn't resolve. So they, you know, two, three weeks in, I'm still experiencing them. I try to go on a run. They're horrific which now I know is exercise intolerance and is treatable, but I didn't know that then. And so I proceeded just to get worse and worse and worse over about a two-year period. So it ended up being significant visual symptoms, vestibular stuff, so feeling like I was falling all the time, working memory where I couldn't hold like one plus one in my head long enough to like add three to it. What I now know is dysautonomia, but where I felt like I was fainting little bits throughout the day, massive headaches, sleep issues, kind of all these things. And so I would go from kind of doctor to doctor being like, this is what's going on as I'm just getting worse and worse and worse. And everyone kept telling me, you know, there's nothing wrong or it's psychological or they would address the headaches. Maybe it's suboccipital. And we did all these things. And I just got worse for about two years to the point where I could barely feed myself. My left side of my body started to weaken about nine months in. I started to just have a ton of pain in it. And about two years in was when I finally got diagnosed with post-concussion syndrome, which is what we were calling it then. And even still, no one knew what to do with me. So no one knew how to help me. They kept telling me it's psychological. They kept telling me it's time or just breathe or something like that. So I ended up really, and I'm a healthcare provider and I even work with difficult cases. So I thought I'd understand, you know, how to navigate the healthcare system if something like this had happened to me, but I just fell through the cracks so darn easy. And it was not from lack of trying. I was seeing lots of people. And what I realized very quickly is people just didn't have an awareness. Number one, that concussions could have lingering symptoms or number two, how severe those symptoms could be like at all. So over the next year and a half, I got worse and worse and worse. I ended up bed bound. My mom had to come 
picked me up in San Diego. We went back to Washington where she was my caregiver for the next three or four years. I could barely dress myself. I could, it was all I could do to like have meals that she would make. We started to go from person to person to see like if we could find someone to help. And I would spend time, I could barely read. I could process the words. I couldn't focus on the words. My eyes couldn't converge or track. So it was just really nauseating and dizzying. And and I would try to read to find people like me. And then about four years in, we kind of started to see people who knew what they were doing and who could actually give me like objective tests and treatment. And then those people started to connect me with other people who knew what they were doing. And that began like this, what's now been five year digging myself out of this massive pile of symptoms that never should have gotten as bad as they got that were now so involved with each other that it became really difficult to undo. And then I had a couple things that aren't as common to have that were really challenging. Like I had a movement disorder that developed and it's just like this nightmare. But what we're finding is even, you know, I didn't start getting treatment for four or five years. Right. And at that point people, you know, I was told you're going to be disabled for the rest of your life. This is it. I could barely speak. I could barely think. I had a drop in my IQ. I had personality changes. I couldn't read. I couldn't write, couldn't drive, could barely stand up because I was start to pass out. I mean, it was everything that could have gone wrong did. And now I've probably improved about 80% since then. So Mm -hmm. this idea that like we can't treat these things at all is like a load of crap. And the idea that if you are out a certain amount of time that you can't treat them, not the case these things are treatable. And so now I'm working with my friend and colleague and we're hoping to get the last bit, but like we just had a session yesterday and I felt significantly better afterwards. So like I'm still responding, still improving. And so we're hoping that we'll get back to functional here soon, but it's just, it's been a long road and it's why I do what I do because it just, you know, I'm a case of poor concussion management and the effects that can have. So now I work with people to make sure they don't end up like me. Wow. Thanks for sharing all that. And thanks for diving into some of those personal symptoms and and that personal journey, because that's not easy. And I think that what your journey in your concussion reflects a lot is how our medical system has understood concussions (laughs) coming up to just recently, you know, with all the things happening Mm -hmm. in some of the major like NFL and boxing. And we're seeing all these individuals who have these long-term issues with, you know, these subconcussive blows and chronic traumatic encephalopathy. And one thing that I love that you said is, um, you know, I've been told, I was told for so long that we just can't treat this. And you said, that's BS, you know, I'm not, and I I don't think that's Mm -hmm. the case with really anything. I always think there's a way that we can provide that influence and environment. I want to talk about your early hospital journey and then transition, because you said those first three, four, five years, you just kept having people coming to you and they tried some things. I kind of want to hear some of the initial things that they tried. You said, oh, they said maybe relax or just breathe or whatever. Were there any specific things that you kept having people try or medications or things like that? And then how did you end up finding that, you know, group of people that were doing this right quote in your mind or or in a way that helped you take control and find some control over this thing? So in the beginning, I would tell people of these symptoms and it was just like talking to a wall. Like they just the the awareness that they weren't aware wasn't there. And so 
I would say that I'm experiencing these symptoms, but I don't think most people, and I think most of them were genuinely trying to help me and they were compassionate and they were intelligent. They just didn't realize that there was this whole other world and aspect to these injuries that existed. So I'd be explaining these symptoms and I would explain fatigue and they would kind of put it in the box of a fatigue that a normal neurologically healthy person experiences, which wasn't the case. I would say, you know, I'm really, I can't remember things. And they would say, oh, you know, I forget things too. And ultimately we were just speaking two different languages. We were talking about two very different things in similar words. And so I think it was really hard for people to understand how much more there was to it. And that was like by far the difference when I saw people who finally knew what they were doing is you could tell instantly that they got it and they'd heard it before and you weren't trying to convince them that it was more. They got it. And early on, it was mostly like rest, kind of wait and see, which we don't recommend anymore. Various medications that didn't help me at all. A lot of just kind of dismissiveness. There wasn't that many people that really gave me any tools. It was more just kind of you're fine, I roll, go back to whatever or go to this psychologist. It wasn't really anything that was actually treatment for a long time. I saw a functional medicine doctor who changed my diet, which was helpful. But I don't think I saw much that actually helped for like three years. I met the first person who kind of knew what they were doing. And then four years is when I got home and I had the support. And then we really started to make a dent in it. And who was that person that you saw three years into it? And how did you find them? Because especially for someone who's already been, you know, going after provider after provider and seeking help, how did you even come across someone who was like, hey, I could help you? And who was that person? Her name was Melinda Rowland. And I was at a point where I was almost completely broke. I was at a really dark place in my recovery you know, was really struggling with money. And I can't even remember like how I got to her, but somehow she'd had some kind of background that I had been Googling. And then I started to read her website and you can tell when people get it. And so I'm like, oh my gosh, I think this might be key, but I couldn't afford her. So I wrote her an email and I still have it, I think somewhere. And it was like, I'm, you know, I think I was 28 or something like that. And I would have been 29. And I'm like, this is what I've been having. This one's been going through. You know, I can't afford that full fee, but I, you know, I can do da 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 da. And she wrote me back and was like, just come in. And she was the first person that I would talk to where I didn't feel like I was going insane or trying to like convince them of it. And she started to connect me with a couple other people. And more than anything at that point, just having someone believe me and nod their head when I was telling my story, like this is stuff they've heard before and this is stuff they see, was huge. And so. She was a physical therapist and we worked on some stuff together. And then I ended up going back and seeing her even when I moved back to Washington a few times and we still keep in touch. And I just think she's great. But yeah, she kind of came at a time where I really needed her. I remember even watching your video of how you were walking, you know, and your Mm -hmm. leg would kick out to your side and your head would turn and and kind of twitch and everything. I, I I don't think that people can even comprehend what that looks like. That is one of the symptoms of post-concussive symptoms that you had gotten to in your body. Like the fact that you could not mm-hmm. walk, your leg would kick out every yeah. step, your hands would do something, your, your face. I mean, who was it that you were working with and how did you start to get to a point where it improved? Because I remember those videos side to side and anyone who wants to look it up, Molly Parker PT on Instagram, go look because 
you'll find this video. And I remember us talking about that and me telling you to post that because it is so, Yeah, <laughs> I, people need to wrap their heads around what this can look like in the body. I mean, this isn't just, you know, headaches and, and not being able to think clearly. This is a physical thing that's affecting your life. Yeah, I developed a movement disorder. And I think they're missed like a lot in concussions. So mine was one that I could overpower and kind of make myself look normal. But if I wasn't, I was, you know, involuntary movements and shaking head to toe, and it just felt awful. And it was super draining. And so for other people, this could be like, if you're having ticks, if you're having tremors, if you're trying to strengthen, and you just can't for no particular reason, it's really worth getting to someone who knows like the sensory motor aspect of post concussion stuff. Because it just comes from so many movement is driven by so many systems and modulated by it, that when those things are affected, it can manifest like in your movement. And so that was by far and still is the hardest thing to treat, because it just got so involved. So I ended up having an IQ drop, and really struggling eventually five years in restoring a lot of the cognitive piece. Once I had that, I could start to think enough. So then I actually diagnosed it on my own because I said it out loud to someone and I was like, oh my gosh, I treat people with this stuff. (laughs) I not recognize it myself. Like that's just how cognitively compromised I was. So then I started asking around. I ended up getting the same name from two people in the same week. So I reached out. Her name's Dr. Nancy Bill. She works in San Francisco and she's like the movement disorder. She makes the protocols. She's amazing. So we ended up having an overlap of we were going to be in the same town. And so she invited me to meet up with her after this conference. And luck would have it that the conference ended early. And she's like, why don't you come, you know, share your story with everyone. Maybe we can help you. This is a crowd of like PTs and neurologists and athletic trainers. And so I did. And I stood up there and like, you know, Jen saw like my head used to turn aside and really shake. My arm would curl in almost like it looked kind of like I'd had a stroke telling this story and a woman in the audience came up to me afterwards and goes, you know, I work with the UCLA movement disorder team and we see people like you every day. And I think we can, I think we can help. And that was the first person who ever, like people would just look at me like I had two heads and no one knew really what to do with me. And so this was the first person that actually felt confident in it. And like, she'd seen it before, which no one had seen it before. And so I came down to LA, which is how I ended up meeting you. Mm-hmm. And that video, and guys, it was like that video was after a month. So it was walking extremely involved. And then we did a month of treatment where I came in about three times a week. And then I did a lot of stuff on my own. And that just in a nutshell is the power of neuroplasticity. Like that's just the power of our brains can change ourselves when we with cells in a way that we want when we're giving it the correct input. And the people that work there are just amazing. It's reactive physical therapy. And that changed the game for me. That was a huge, huge step in being able to treat everything else. Yeah. And I love how putting the story out there is what drew some of these providers in. And it's Mm -hmm. difficult when we as providers have something happen that we don't know. And and we feel for the first time that, that fear that I think a lot of our patients and clients feel that we don't know about Mm -hmm. because it's like, hey, normally we know everything that's going on in our body. And as soon as we're thrown into that uncertainty, it's like, 
okay, what the heck now? And even before we hopped on, I shared a little bit of my story about my post-concussive symptoms with you and mm-hmm. just the, how healing it is when you say, I know what you're talking about. Yeah. For me, you know, and it's just like to hear someone say that is like healing in itself. Because for the longest time, mm-hmm. when you sit in front of providers and tell them this story that they may not understand, I think a lot of providers get uncomfortable because they normally can kind of explain what's going on in someone's body. And when someone sits in front of them that they really can't understand or help or even know what's going on, you know, a lot of providers, I think, get uncomfortable in that kind of room and space. And as providers, I I think we do just need to grow our awareness of these things that we don't understand. And a lot of providers, I think, kind of silo themselves away from wanting to understand those things that they don't understand and chalking it up to the person. And so, Mm -hmm. again, like I can speak a little bit to some of the frustrations you felt because it's hard to find people who really understand how you feel unless they're intimately tied into it themselves. And so what I wanted to ask you is when you found that first provider who you were just like, oh my gosh, they understand me. How long after that did it take you to start feeling any benefit or any improvement? It was such a big fat mess for a while that I started to like take the edge off in like year four, but I didn't start to see more noticeable improvements till year five. And then once we kind of cleaned up the movement disorder stuff, that was huge. Then I made it to someone who cleaned up kind of like had what was called dysautonomia and that was huge. And it was almost like, I couldn't tell where the symptoms were coming from until they went away with certain treatment. Like there was some stuff I couldn't tell it was visual and then I would get vision therapy and certain things would go away. And I was like, Oh, that was where that was coming Mm -hmm. from. It's just so abstract, but yeah, it's like having people who listen, like they have something to learn and really get curious and ask why, even if they can't, even if like you're a provider and you don't feel like you are comfortable treating these prolonged cases even having someone who, you know, you're listening to them and you're hearing them and you're believing them and you're doing your best you can, that in and of itself is therapeutic for this group of people just because they see so many providers that kind of dismiss it. Mm. So yeah, that is just makes the biggest difference. You mentioned like they would do some visual therapy. Can you just talk about a couple other things they may have worked on with you or some of the systems they may have worked on? I mean, I've heard you mention vision yeah. and vestibular here and explain a little bit about that. Yeah. So like with prolonged concussion symptoms, there's different types. So there's what we called phenotypes and there's six, you know, for sure, seventh that's been proposed. And so you have different categories of symptoms and based on those symptoms is how we get people to targeted treatment. So, you know, they say each concussions are unique because everyone has kind of different things driving their individual symptoms. So this could be like vision, where you would get vision therapy. This could be vestibular, where you go to vestibular therapy. This could be cognitive, where you go to cognitive therapy. So we can start to match these phenotypes and then direct people to the proper care. And that's when we start to see real changes in this group of people. And it can even be like PTs have a huge role in this in particular, because it's cervicogenic, which we teach, or treat, which is vestibular, which we treat. When you get a therapist who's really dived into concussion, there's a lot of basic visual stuff that we can incorporate or working with an optometrist, but it's just figuring out where it's coming from for you. So for me, it was vision and vestibular were huge. 
the movement disorder piece where I worked with the neuro PTs and someone trained in functional neurology was really helpful. The cognitive piece, I had working memory issues. I worked with a neuropsychologist on that and then a speech therapist and they treated those symptoms and that responded really well. And so those were kind of like the big things. And then it was getting back into aerobic exercise and getting my body to tolerate that movement again with the shaking, which again, PTs. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's just figuring out what was causing it and then matching it. And that's what made all the difference. And where are you now? Now that you've been through, you know, this massive, incredible journey, where is your health and how are your symptoms? So my cognitive symptoms are gone. My IQ is back to normal. My frontal lobe runs like a champ. My dysautonomia, which I had a form called POTS, that is gone, which has been massively helpful. My movement disorder is probably about 70% of the way there, but it's still pretty involved. My mood stuff is almost all gone. And so right now we're mostly working on movement and then I have a little bit leftover of some visual stuff are the two big things for me. And that's just resulting in a lot of fatigue because the shaking all that time is hard and then visual symptoms are very fatiguing. Our vision does everything. Mm. So yeah, it's a lot of fatigue. It's a lot of still planning and pacing my day. So I'm about 80% better than I was, but I'm still only getting about 20% of a day. And so we're just now, nine years in, just now being able to exercise aerobically and have it be beneficial for me. So we just started all that stuff and I'm progressing really well and starting to feel much better. So fingers crossed that that'll be kind of like the shift into actual function where I'm not so tired. Wow, that is incredible. Well, congratulations on (laughs) how you've been progressing. Snaps and claps. And it's just Mm -hmm. a journey of persistence and resilience and sticking to the plan and continuing to try new things. Just going back to like the beginning. And if someone's out there and is like, Mm -hmm. hey, I had a concussion or I got diagnosed with one or I think I had a concussion and I haven't talked to anybody about it. What are the initial steps that the average person should take if they have had a concussion or think they had one? I'm so glad you asked because we've learned so much about concussions in the last few years. It's just been exponential. And so there's a lot of conflicting and outdated advice. So things to be aware of is we used to tell people to, you know, rest in a dark room. There's nothing you can do. All those things like that are totally out the window. And we've shifted to what we call an active recovery because we're finding that if we get people moving faster, that they really do much better and that we can mitigate the risk of prolonged symptoms significantly. So what that looks like is if you sustain a concussion, you want to get in to see someone who's appropriately trained within 24 to 48 hours for an evaluation. This person can then give you education and will help guide you through the return to physical and cognitive activity. And so if you've had an injury and you have symptoms where you are experiencing red flags, you go into, you know, the emergency room. But if you're someone who's, you've had a concussion or maybe you're not sure, err on the side of caution, get in to see someone within 24 to 48 hours. We recommend about 24 hours to 72 hours of rest. And then after that, we're guiding you through an active recovery. So we're progressively adding on physical and cognitive activity based on your symptoms until we, you know, reach symptom resolution and you're back into full daily life. 
And it's important to have that guided by a healthcare provider just because that can look so different from people. Your two kind of big no-nos are you want to make sure you're not in a situation where you're going to get a second concussion before the first is healed. And you're wanting to do things below your symptom exacerbation threshold, meaning you can kind of gradually increase to whatever you'd like as long as you're not increasing your symptoms. Increasing symptoms or pushing through them is not something that's going to be productive. Symptoms will tend to resolve around that 10-day mark. And if not, we tend to proactively start treating people as if they're going to develop these prolonged symptoms and we get them into treatment based on their symptoms. I think the huge, huge thing that especially if like you're an athlete or you have a job like you're a firefighter or construction worker where you might be in a situation to get another concussion is it's key to understand that your symptoms are going to resolve before your brain fully heals. So just like if you, you know, you broke your ankle, the pain would go away before your bone has healed and you can take your cast off. So when your symptoms has recovered, that does not mean that your brain has metabolically healed. Symptom recovery is typically around 10 to 14 days. It can be anywhere from one to four weeks, but the recovery of your brain takes three to six weeks. So you want to make sure that even when your symptoms have recovered, that's not an okay to get back on the field. What we need to do is put you through some testing and make sure that your symptoms aren't increasing with that testing to fully clear you for sport or for a physical job or something like that. And that's what's going to give you the best chance of success. So testing is going to look like a battery of tests where they might look at, you know, neurocognitive tests. We'll do a neuro screen. They would look at your reaction time. They would look at things like they put you on a treadmill and steadily increase your heart rate? And can you increase your heart rate and still not get symptomatic? So those are kind of the basic steps we take in an acute concussion. And then, like I said, if you're 10 days out or more still experiencing symptoms, we start to treat you as if you're going to have prolonged symptoms and we get you into targeted treatment. And who is that someone that people should be seeking? Because you said, oh, go see someone right away. Yeah. Who do people know to go to? Because usually it's your MD or maybe it's just a PT locally. Like what should you be looking for as a healthcare provider specifically that can be trained in this? So there's multiple points of entry into the healthcare system. And part of it's going to be like what your insurance covers or what that profession is able to do depending on where they're located. So this could look like your neurologist or your MD are most common. And you're looking for someone that, you know, on their website, it should say they treat concussions. You can ask them, have you had recent training? Because this stuff changes really, really quickly. So you want to make sure they're up to date. So you're looking for someone with current and advanced training. They specifically treat concussions. This could be your neurologist. This could be another MD. I think physical therapists are great here if they're properly trained. And again, you're looking for someone with recent accurate information ways you're going to know that you're not with the right person is if you're given outdated advice that sounds like rest in a dark room is no longer recommended. If they're telling you to wait and see, which sounds like, oh, you know, rest or wait four weeks and come back to me, that's not appropriate. If you're seeing someone who's denying you've had a concussion at all because maybe you didn't lose consciousness when only 10% of concussions lose consciousness, those are all people that even if they say they treat concussions and you're getting advice like that, that is not accurate. So you'd want to switch to someone who instead it's going to sound like full evaluation, 
explain to you what a concussion is, what to look out for, and then they are going to guide you through a guided gradual return to physical and cognitive activity. So this should not be like, go off and just figure it out on your own. They should be progressing you through these protocols safely. And that's what is going to help make the difference for people to fully recover. Because when we manage these well, about 80% of people will recover, you know, symptom-free from an acute concussion. These are totally treatable. And of the 20%, we can still treat those symptoms. But you want someone who's engaging in an active recovery. It's a long-winded way of saying that even if they say they're trained in concussions and it's current, they still might not be. So it's just making sure that you're getting active advice, not medication, rest, wait. Yeah, I think that's invaluable information because a lot of the times when we go to the doctor and they tell us the thing, we just take it for gold mm-hmm. because they're the doctor, right? Mm-hmm. And, you know, this is what they told me. So clearly this is what I should do. And I think it will really help some people out there say, okay, maybe what they told me isn't exactly correct and that they just aren't super well trained in it. So I think that's great for people to hear. Mm-hmm. And talking about up-to-date information and, and a way to get some great information, I think I heard that you have a program that is either out or coming out very yeah. soon. What, when's that coming out? It comes out April 13th. And it's something that as I was going through my recovery, I would just vow that as soon as I was physically able, I was going to create all the things that would have changed my trajectory entirely, just so that people had this accurate information in a way that was easy to get and it was super digestible. So myself and my business partner, Natasha Wilch, who's also like an amazing concussion physiotherapist, created a program called Concussion Compass, and it is meant to fill in all the gaps of concussion recovery. And for providers, it's the perfect adjunct to one-on-one care because it basically lets you do what you do best and we take care of the rest. So you can focus in on your area of expertise and we'll take care of the planning and pacing or anything to kind of fill in the gaps so that you can be more efficient in your own care. And we're hoping that this helps give people the information and the support they need right away so that they can have optimal recovery outcomes. And we are so excited about it. So if you are four weeks out or more and you're still experiencing symptoms in concussion recovery, concussion compass is the place to be so we're super super excited we hope it moves the needle in concussion recovery 100 percent. and if you're a clinician listening like go get involved in this you are giving incredible tools and just like i want to acknowledge you even being here because i know this is fatiguing like telling your story talking Mm -hmm. you being able to take away from what you're already doing and bring this to our audience i'm just so incredibly appreciative over and over again like no matter who I talk to if they know who you are it's like Molly is the sweetest human in the world and I'm like I know isn't she (laughs) (laughs) you truly are just can I just acknowledge you for a second (laughs) the fact that you understand that this would be fatiguing is key and that's such like a takeaway for healthcare providers too because your patients are going to look kind of normal guys like even if they have like this massive concussion stuff I had the movement stuff which you could see but a lot of these people will look totally normal and some of them will even sound articulate. It doesn't mean that it is not still challenging for them or fatiguing for them or symptom provoking. So even just being able to have that recognition shifts the way people think and approach these things. And it's huge. So yay, Jen. <laughs> As you talked through your program, I have a few 
good friends of mine that I played football with that I definitely will be directing towards information like that because they've reached out to me and said things like, man, yeah. this stuff still isn't going away. And it's just, yeah, it's good to know that there's people working on solutions for those guys. Yeah. And it's like, so myself, I've been through it and my partner dedicates her life to it. So we basically mentor people through it and we bring on other experts. So if you're like, I just don't have anyone to give me this information and I need someone who gets like the full picture, that's really what we can offer you. And so we're, we're so excited. It's going to be so great. I wish I would have had this. We're going to link it up in the show notes as yes. well to make sure that people get involved. It's so pertinent and you're providing the access, the research, the resources. And I just, I appreciate who you are, Molly. Thank you so, so much. I appreciate you guys having me on. It's just, yeah, even having people putting this information out for others, I think it's just going to find its way to people that need it. And so you guys taking on this topic and helping spread awareness is like huge. I think it's going to, it'll make, I for sure will make a difference in somebody's life who needs this stuff. And everyone go show Molly some love on Instagram to Molly Parker PT, because as you realize, like her even just visually looking at Instagram, putting up videos, typing up captions and everything that you do for people. I can't even fathom and wrap my head around how much you do and how much you go through in your own body just to be able to put that out there. So I hope that everyone goes and shows you love because one, they're going to learn a ton from you, <laughs> but also just what you're giving to people. You are so incredible. So thank you, Molly. The language you speak is something that likely some people out there may have never heard before. And so I know that yeah. you will be the entry point into recovery for some of the people that are listening. Thanks, guys. All right, Molly. Well, I'm sure we'll have you back on again, and I'm sure we'll get questions and more so that we can dive in even further for people. But thank you so incredibly much. I keep mm -hmm. saying it, but I just <laughs> we just mean it. And we'll talk to you soon. Thanks, guys. Thank you so much for listening to us on the Optimal Body Podcast, where we're going to continue to bring you the PT pearls and guests that will help you find your optimal body. Now, head over to wherever you listen to this and leave us an honest review and head to docgenfit.com backslash podcast where you can find all the show notes. Don't forget that we're going to give away a free month to someone who subscribes, leaves us an awesome review, and lets us know what they want to review on the next PT Pearl. So we'll be choosing that once a week to get into a free month of the Optimal Body Membership.